Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hi, this podcast comes with a little ears warning. There are some naughty words. So if you've got little ears listening, it might be best to listen to it at a later date or with your headphones in. In today's episode, I chat with Josh Muller and we look at gender and sexuality. We talk about inclusive practice, how to be a more inclusive practitioner, and some of the things you might need to consider in the language that you use, in the space that you have, and all your communication with people, whether that be via email, through your website, or in the organization that you work with. We have a really good chat around some of the things you should consider around exploring your own ideas of gender and sexuality and how to feel more comfortable using language that maybe you're not used to. Josh makes some recommendations for different websites and some podcasts you can listen to if you want to learn a little bit more. Here's my episode with Josh. Welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. I'm here talking with Josh Muller. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, did you want to give our listeners a bit of a, I guess, background into who you are uh, and the things you're putting out into the world? Yeah, sure. So my name is Josh Muller. I go by they, them pronouns. I'm a psychologist working predominantly in queer spaces or with LGBTQIA plus folks in the realm of sex, gender, sexuality. Um, I'm working in private practice at the moment, but I don't know, I guess I've got a bit of a history in research. I love my data and stats. Um, I also work, work a bit in the sexology space or, or with sex therapists and things like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, a lot of our listeners are uh, graduates or early career um, social workers and, and more yeah. recently other allied health um, professionals. So I guess it's a good chance to have a chat about what are sorts of the thing or what are some things that they can start to think about when working with diversity across a range of areas. So mm. um, maybe we could start with in your experience and with the work you do, what are, what are some of the language that we should use or things we should avoid and how we should show up for clients? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And I suppose I would also maybe count myself in, the sort of early career, um, maybe middle career, I don't know, maybe early career, I'm only 30. <laughs> um, but ty- types of things to be thinking about with LGBTQ clients are, I guess, lo- lots of us haven't gotten much good education around language or around community or around what it's like to be queer. And so get, getting some basic education, um, lots of free stuff online, I think is really crucial um, to have, I guess, a, a foundation and getting some familiarity around language. Um, the last thing that you want to do is being it is like tripping up because you're really uncomfortable around language. Um, so I don't know, best way is just to practice it and, and get familiar with things. Um, for, for me, it goes a lot past saying the right thing or knowing the specific phrases or words. That's often the first thing that professionals want to ask me, what, what is the right word to use or not use? But for me, the, the intention is 
far more important and the intention around helping someone as a whole person um, goes ac across health fields, across social work or psychology or whatever it might be, that holding that intention really firmly and taking an approach that's gentle, curious, compassionate, respectful, that's way more important um, than, than getting the exact right words. I think your point of curiosity um, resonated with me and how that can impact language as well. So instead of maybe saying to someone straight away who may look female, oh, do you have a boyfriend or yeah. do you live with mum and dad? Just sort of yeah. saying, who's in your family? Who do you live with? Do you have, you know, do you have, you know, a romantic interest or are you seeing anybody at the moment? Yeah. So being curious without making those assumptions based on, on a whole range of things. It could be really anything mm. um, could be really valuable in this space. Yeah, and part, part of the examples that you just gave are about degendering our language in the same way. I don't know if you've spoken to anyone about like decolonizing practice um, or practicing from an anti-oppressive or anti-racist framework. Um, in the space of gender and sexuality, we're in the business of dismantling heteropatriarchy and the gender binary um, and think, like assuming that a woman coming to you must have a boyfriend or must want to get a husband and have children and only the one person and <laughs> all of these different things really kind of like built into our structures and systems and institutions. So a lot of what, what being a good LGBTQ therapist is to me is is a degree of unlearning <laughs> um, what society has told us is the right way to be around gender and sexuality or relationships um, to then start, start with less assumptions and allow people to allow people to grow from there or show you what their story is from there. So how can people start putting that into practice right from their first interaction with people? So whether it's your website, your office space, what are some things around maybe intake forms, the things you have around your office, maybe the magazines yep. in the waiting room? What are some things people can consider to start making their space a little bit more mm. inclusive? Because maybe for nine out of 10 clients, it, they might not notice, but for that mm. one person who... Um, that's an important part of their identity. They'll mm. notice that. Yeah, I suppose with with forms or intake questionnaires, things like that, consider what what information you're asking, why you're asking it, and what you're going to use it for, and and then allow that to guide a bit of how you ask things. So if you're asking about gender, say gender we know tends to be like a fairly important thing or construct or a way of placing people in the world um, and so if you want to ask about gender because that's relevant to your therapeutic relationship with this person then making space to put how they identify and that of course goes beyond male or female um, because there are many more genders than that the exact right way to ask that question honestly like we could spend a whole episode on that um there's a million different examples online people have 
pull this question to thread, thread this kind of thing. I would say at a at a minimum, having male, female, non-binary, and a space to specify by typing in or writing in, at a minimum, and that that allows people to to kind of say who they are. If you're asking about their biological sex or the I don't know the mark that they've got on their Medicare card. You can ask that specifically, but I'd ask that in a separate question and also potentially then say, why are you asking that question? And it might be that that's because that's the thing that needs to go into your practice software or for legal reasons, that's got to be in there. You can say that you can say, mm -hmm. look, we need to put this in here for legal reasons and you will never be addressed in the waiting room or by me as <laughs> this gender if it doesn't match up with the gender that you've said you identify with kind of thing yeah um so I, I guess that's that's one thing um questions about relationships um use words like partner or or you know intimate partner relationship rather than boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife necessarily mm. um have space for more than one partner um and or if you're asking people their sexuality have have like a bunch of options because it generally doesn't doesn't cost you much as a pra practice to have lots of options um for the purpose of research if you're trying to do research and do group comparisons you need to be making different decisions around data collection and how you stratify group that uh, stratify groups but if you're just collecting the data because you're interested in them as an individual, like put heaps of heaps of options. Uh, there's no literally no cost to you. Mm. And if you have some straight cisgender clients who are like, oh, like you asked me this question and there are 40 different possible answers, but I just wanted to pick I'm I'm normal <laughs> um, or I'm straight. Uh, and I had trouble finding it while I was scrolling through pansexual and gender queer and stuff. Then, like, wow, they had a minor inconvenience in their day where <laughs> living in a world that totally caters to them. <laughs> like, that's an acceptable, acceptable cost. Mm. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to share a story that comes to mind. One of my students is on placement in a setting where. Uh, talking about gender and sexuality is not as um, free. And yep. uh, this, um, this student made the choice to, they were having a, a kind of an intake assessment with someone. And instead of asking mm. them, do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, just said something really general, like, are you seeing anybody or are you dating? And yeah. no one had ever asked them that general before. And that, that young person essentially kind of came out to the therapist. And that was the first time that actually ever said aloud, actually, I do have a crush wow. on another boy. Yeah. And I'm a boy and just because she's really mindful of keeping this language as neutral as possible. And yeah. it just opened up a whole new conversation because he'd never felt that trust mm. in a, in a, in a person before. Yeah. Wow. I think that's a really amazing example of how the way in which communicate you communicate and sort of like <laughs> how we communicate 
doesn't just communicate the content of what we're speaking, but it also communicates our beliefs and principles and assumptions about the world. If I were to meet you on the street and said, um, you know, like, what, what, what are you doing out, out of home away from your husband? <laughs> um, just guessing based off what, what you looked like. Like that, that communicates a whole lot other than just my question. And so when, when that young, um, young trainee or counsellor or student was uh, asking this question, asking it in a gentle, open way that was respectful of any possible answer that this young person could give them, created the safety and communicated, I am a safe person for you to talk mm. to. Yeah. So you, you mentioned earlier, one of the things some clinicians struggle with is to be comfortable with that language themselves, whether it's mm. some have good intentions, but are scared they'll get it wrong or say the wrong thing. Yeah. And others, it's um, a bit more of a, just an ignorance that maybe they don't uh, work with as much diversity or in their personal mm. professional lives, they don't have um, a lot of interaction with well, to their knowledge of people that yeah. have a wide range of um, gender and sexuality. So mm. what are some things that people can do to start to feel more comfortable so they don't kind of put their foot in it and say the wrong thing just because they're really awkward. It's like when we yeah. talk to couples in couples therapy about sex, you know, if you're yeah. really uncomfortable talking about it, you can't ask it. And if right. you can't ask it, it makes the client feel like it's not a safe topic to talk about. Right. So how do well, people get more comfortable with that? Just like I would say, in order to get more comfortable around speaking explicitly about sex, what do you need to do? You need to interrogate your own understanding and relationship with sex and confront any sexual shame that you have, of which there will be some, right? There's so likely to be some because we live in a really sex-negative society. We also live in a homophobic society. We also live in a femphobic, misogynistic, trans-misogynistic society. All of those things get communicated and internalised, often really, really young, and it takes active work to unlearn them, like I was saying before. I think that the way to do it, the way to get more comfortable is to look inside yourself. If you've never questioned your gender before, it's worth questioning your gender and thinking, well, what makes me the gender that I am? And when did I know that I was the gender that I was? And have there been times in which my gender has been challenged perhaps or when I felt out of my depth or mm. uncomfortable with a part of my body or like I wished that, that I wasn't part of the group that I get placed in or, I don't know, told a really specific narrow view of gender that I don't quite fit these types of things so there's that there's looking internally which I think as therapists and social workers and mental health practitioners we need like this requirement of the job to do internal work we're not just folks that can deliver therapy via a, a diagnostic manual and a <laughs> thing um, so that internal work is crucial. Also, literally just practice. Sign, sign up, like if you're listening to this podcast now, you're someone who listens to podcasts, listen to five to 20 different podcasts about gender or sexuality. 
just like get get comfortable with it listen mm. to it bring it into part of your daily existence follow some people on instagram join some facebook groups read a book or two all of that what that does is it slowly allows those messages of gender or sexuality acceptance as well as the language as well as that comfort it allows it to sort of just seep into your brain mm. and keeps it in your brain for a sustained period to kind of remind you oh yeah that's what trans misogynistic means or yeah. oh yeah that's what a packer is or I don't know. <laughs> it's what so um, maybe I'll get you at the end to shout out a few websites and we can put some things in the show mm-hmm. notes of any particular um, things that you want people to kind of look into. Yeah, yeah, sure. So how do we, so on the, the flip side, what, what are some tips for those who maybe are so eager to look at things um, and people's diversity that they might then think everything that a person's coming to see them for is about that. So let's say you're working, you see on a, an intake. Can you hear me? Um, I can now. Sorry, you cool. just cut out. Um, so I was sort of asking, how do we sidestep this um, idea that sometimes that's the only reason that we, that's the only thing we need to be talking about in therapy. So if you see maybe on an intake form that someone identifies as trans, you might be geared up to say, okay, so they must be feeling pressure to tell their family or difficulty mm. with their gender. How do we actually just see the problem for what it is? They could be coming because they're having relationship mm. issues that have nothing to do with the gender. It's just a relationship issue. So how do, yep. how do we make sure we find that balance of being curious but also just looking at the person as mm. they are in that moment and what they need? I would say it's the same with any other social grouping. So if they're disabled, if they're a particular age, if they're, um, I don't know, like a particular ethnic background, it might be useful to understand some of the common experiences of people in those groups and to kind of like know that as a bit of context. And also every single time you have someone in front of you, you ask the question, what are you here for? Why now? What do you want to work on? What's the change that you want to make? And uh, I suppose with, for, for me in my practice, I pretty openly say most of the people who I work with are LGBTQIA+, the vast majority. Um, sometimes we're working specifically on gender or sexual sexuality issues. Sometimes we're working on their depression and they just happen to be gay. But me knowing that they're gay and knowing a fair bit about gay community and what, I don't know, gay dating apps are like and what the history of being gay is being like, or some of the language of it, might give me into specific nuances of how their depression is working, say, or, or how they're placed in society. Um, maybe, <laughs> but, but not necessarily. They're, everyone is still an individual mm. and there's lots and lots of variation within groups. Um, so I don't know. If you had a 70-year-old come in to see you, and uh, your immediate thought was, oh, this person is older, so they'll definitely be wanting to talk about 
grandchildren or dying or sickness or the war or something yeah. <laughs> like that like it's um it's useful like it is useful to be able to see people's groupings and have a think about them that's that's why we have intake forms that's why we ask people about their histories a bit that's why we try to get to know people and also not reduce them to it and not reduce them to a stereotype. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that, that's really, it's really helpful and it's really useful, I think, like you said, to the example of someone who's older. Sometimes it is helpful to understand what could be some of the life stages that they're going through, mm. perhaps have a bit more of an awareness of um, even what to look out for. Like, you know, if you're working with someone who's just had a baby versus someone who's 70, you're looking at, you know, maybe there's a red flag or I should keep an eye out for postnatal depression in this. I should be thinking of maybe they're experiencing grief and loss and retirement. So, you know, it is a way to keep in mind Mm. and be upskilled in those areas. And I think that's why people like to niche as well, because it means they can feel more comfortable that they know what to look for within a particular area. Yeah. I think that the things to be thinking about with queer people in general is a knowledge that they might not out in community, that they likely have experiences from mental health professionals or from the medical institutions in general, that they might have really bad relationships with police or the state in general. Um, potentially through persecution, either here in Australia or overseas, if they're up front from overseas. Um, And that maybe they have issues with their body, maybe they have issues with their relationship or sexuality. But then also, like, I don't know, I I think about um, some queer folks that I know are absolutely way more comfortable with sex and sexuality and have way better relationships with sexual health and, I don't know, emotional communication and things like this than most straight cis people I know. Um, that, that it can also go the other way. Um, and, yeah, not... Oh, one, one thing that I will say, um, sorry, sorry to kind of jump around a little bit, is never never assume or reduce someone's gender or sexuality to trauma that they've experienced. This has been like a theory or hypothesis that has kind of traveled along for the last hundred years or so through Western mental health stuff. Um, Trauma, of course, often plays a big role in people's lives and how they form their identity and relationships and it can form a backdrop that can be difficult to get over or leads to certain patterns. But if someone is identifying as trans or non-binary and they happen to have trauma, one one didn't cause the other. <laughs> and that's something that I I almost want to say as a definite rule, even though as a psychologist, I feel duty bound to say sometimes depends (laughs) um, in every other context. I kind of want to say that, like, if you keep one thing in your head, um, people don't have problems or, or like their problem isn't their gender or sexuality or that didn't come from trauma. So it's not like if you heal their trauma, they'll just not be trans anymore. Um, 
that they're a whole person and you're treating the person in front of you and it's worthwhile accepting that person with the kind of unconditional positive regard of vegetarian <laughs> person-centered focus sort of thing mm. no that's really helpful how how can people um make sure that they're also not taking on more than they can kind of choose so mm. some people really want to be um all in and enthusiastic about whatever whatever client group they're working with. Yeah. Um, how do we handle some of these conversations without coming across as maybe homophobic or ageist or sexist when it's, you know, maybe I just don't, or, you know, I don't work a lot with this particular community. I might not be the best fit. So how do we, mm. how do we acknowledge in ourselves, you know, when it's above our skill set? Mm. Because maybe the content, maybe you can work comfortably with anxiety and depression or um, yeah. but when someone's coming to you and they've added a layer of maybe sexuality or um, relationship um, issues that are out of your comfort zone, Yeah. how do you have that conversation or what are some of your tips for those people? Mm. I think it's, it's quite a difficult question and it's a good question to continually ask yourself as a therapist or a social worker. What are the bounds bounds of my practice expertise um, from both sides, both like, you know what, if this trans person is coming to me and they're wanting to work on their anxiety and I'm like good with working with anxiety, that maybe that's totally fine for me to work with them. Right. And also if they're a trans person and they're wanting to work on their transness and they're looking for medical affirmation, and I actually don't know almost anything about that. In fact, this is the first trans person that I think I've met and I don't really know what the process for hormones and things are. Perhaps that's the time to, to refer on. Um, lot, lots of practitioners think that LGBTQ stuff is specialist knowledge and there are specialist centers and people who specialize in those areas. Um, I hesitate to call myself a specialist because sometimes like the word specialist comes along with certain connotations, but it's a lot of what I deal with and I know a fair bit about it. Um, but for the, for the most part, gaining a basic understanding of a lot of these issues and I don't know, a few changes with your forms, like read a few books, listen to a few podcasts. You can probably do a fair bit of the work mm. and really in order for our health system to be able to cater to LGBTQ people better, we need more than just specialists. We need everyone in the mainstream to be safe enough and not actively harmful. Um, so really I, good. <laughs> I, I don't want to scare anyone off We're working with queer people. Yeah. Like you probably can. It's not that hard. They are human beings as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, um, I mean, one thing I've, I've done with some people is if we've got a really good rapport already and yeah. then um, they're going through some of the changes, the medical transition that maybe I'm not as familiar with, mm. I offer them that specialist consult with someone else, but I say yep. to them as well, like I'm prepared to go to supervision and learn more about this. I yes. will go to PDs, which is how we met. Um, yep. You know, I look at, I'll read some things up. I'm, I can point you in the right direction, but 
I'm, mm. I'm learning this with you. And if you're still comfortable with me, I'll yep. do it. like, and some people quite, I found that a few find that, um, that vulnerability actually quite reassuring that it's like, I'm prepared to do this with you. And I'm mm. actually navigating some of this service with you. Mm. And they don't want to lose that rapport with a therapist or with a worker that they've had a long history with. Right. That therapeutic connection and the relationship, we know from all of the common factors research, that's like, that's like the one thing that makes a difference. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't work, I'm not a neonatal specialist, but if one of my clients is pregnant, I don't say, oh, handball off to the neonatal specialist. I might upskill right. a little bit and yep. then there might be a threshold where I think now this is requiring a level of support that maybe mm. I can't provide. I can either co-work with someone or maybe we look at escalating the referral elsewhere so you know um peer supervision groups are great um i've got a supervisor who uh, does a lot of work around systems and we look at Mm. every every sort of possible family and relationship dynamic that comes Mm. up so i think that's really important that people um it's one thing i push a lot in this podcast is the importance of good supervision peer supervision paid training whatever it is um just to keep learning and to keep exploring your own I guess, social mm. location and your own prejudices. hundred percent. And honestly, any, any queer therapist will be like so overjoyed to hear from another therapist asking for a bit of help um, to do it. I don't know. I'm, I'm really happy to do secondary consultations or answer an email and just like, Give, give someone a few a few things to start off with um, to, to then sort of springboard off if the intention is good and you're not just asking me to do a ton of free labor but like in ge- in general yeah absolutely because I would way prefer you to be able to continue seeing your existing client with a little bit of upskilling a little bit of support so that you feel like all right I'm able to do this um, then needing to refer them to like all all of the lgbtq specific services are all like way overloaded um so we'd way way prefer people to be able to continue seeing the practitioner that they're seeing Mm. yeah how do we get that message out to people if we're in a practice or we work um we're you know keen to work with people who identifies Mm. on the lgbtqi um, spectrum so that they feel comfortable. Cause I know that there's a lot of um, practices that either overlook some of these conversations or, you know, if you're questioning your sexuality and someone just assumes what your partner is, that might deter yeah. you from that service. So oh, yeah. that can prevent people help seeking for quite a while afterwards. And I've seen that with young people where mm. even comments mm. like, um, a parent not disciplining a sibling for saying something like, oh, that's gay. If that young person is actually gay and their parents have let their sibling kind of throw that around as an insult without any fuss, they see that as that person's not going to be comfortable with me if I come out, you know, so how do we, how do we. It's often the truth. (laughs) Yeah. And, or they'll say, oh, look at that person. So-and-so's person, friend did this or did that. Like we pick up on that language as young people or as, as humans. So as a service or as a practice or wherever our social workers and allied health people are working, what can they do to let people know, you know, is it wearing a little pin? Is it an email signature that says your pronouns? What are some of the tips for people to kind of get the message out there that they're a safe person to talk to about this? 
that you yeah look pronouns in your email um i think having a look at your website and if you're using stock imagery of people is there anyone who looks visibly queer um there is the rainbow tick accreditation in australia which is sort of a, an official workplace audit that is fairly extensive and i will say is a little bit difficult for individual practitioners to do but if you you can still go through it and look through it and do like a self audit to be like all right am i actually doing doing this stuff am i am i walking the walk um putting on your website if you've attended a recent training that involved LGBTQ training. Um, I don't know, like, I, I also hesitate to tell people to like put a rainbow flag or something on your website or on your door if, if you're not <laughs> inclusive practice trained. So it can be quite damaging for a client to see a rainbow flag, feel like, all right, this is going to be a safe service and then go in and be, be misgendered by reception say who hasn't gotten the training even if the therapist has so that that's something that i guess we've all got to navigate we're not all going to get it perfect or right but practices and individual therapists tend to gain a reputation fairly quickly in community if they're doing a good job and so a lot of a lot of word of mouth referral happens in terms of who are the safe practitioners, who are the recommended practitioners. Um, I, I've been building a referral list myself uh, called Victorian Inclusive Practice uh, List or something like that. <laughs> I don't know, I'll, I'll say, say, send you the link if I haven't already, um, that is asking practitioners to self-refer onto a list that talks about what areas they practice in for marginalized folks and that's yep. not just lgbtq but also aboriginal Torres Strait islander disability neurodiversity sex workers mm. bdsm and kink non-monogamy i don't know but it's sort of like are often poorly serviced by mainstream providers i really like your um, point of so i don't know hope yeah yeah sorry Go, go ahead. I was going to say, I really like your point of um, you need to have done the training. So it's easier to say I'm disability friendly. Yeah, I'm, I don't mind. I don't, I don't judge people in wheelchairs. But then there's a step to yep. get into your practice or there's no disability bathroom or, you know, saying you're yep. autism friendly but not having thought about the lighting and what sensory overload that might provide or the smells in your office. Like it's easier yeah. to say I'm accepting of this and different, I think, knowing what that looks like in practice and how do you change yep. your setup and and that goes across everything like even eating disorders you, you shouldn't yep. have trashy magazines that are talking about this person lost this much weight and in your yeah, waiting right. room if you're an eating disorder specialist so it's considering in practice what that looks like from your front of house whether it's your website yep. or your linkedin profile right through to in your room yeah the bathrooms that you have available um yeah whether there's a step or things like that yeah, accessibility is um, really important. And I think there, there are increasingly lots of guides online, lots of activists talking about what does good accessibility look like. That um, those resources are out there, but it takes, it takes people to search for them, read them, understand them, and then actually advocating to make those changes in their workplace. 
Um, no one likes change in workplaces, especially in health, especially in schools, especially in hospitals. No, no one likes an expensive change. No one, everyone feels like, oh, well, can't we just make do? Oh, well, like no one's made a fuss before. Oh, well, like, is it that big a deal? Trans people are only 1% of the population. Can't we just like ignore them? Um, I don't like <laughs> you, you make that face, but honestly, it's a, it's, I, I've heard it more, more than once. For those listening, it was a overwhelmed, exacerbated, sad face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> overwhelmed, exacerbated, sad face is often how I feel in, in response to how organizations handle inclusive practice. Yeah, um, <laughs> you just got to be the, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of thing. Yeah. Um, be, be persistent and sometimes you can just like sometimes it's better to just do a thing rather than asking for permission and sending it to a committee like just throw those trashy magazines in the bin and bring some other nicer ones like you can just do that tomorrow like who's gonna who's gonna yell at you like mm. you're causing me to go to a committee or <laughs> some good advice (laughs) so before we wrap up so you you pretty much gave a little bit of a summary of what people can do and what they can consider Mm. um what are some of the personal challenges that you've maybe faced and the support that you've had not just in this uh in a queer space but Mm. i ask a lot of the guests on the show how they've managed i guess their own either risk of burnout, compassion fatigue, how they've used either training or supervision mm. to keep doing that they work the work that they do. Because this can be a hard uh, area to work in. Mm. Uh, things are a lot more prickly at the moment with the current pandemic that's around in the yep. world. So what do you do to keep well and, and how do you keep doing the work you're doing? Mm. I guess I, I treat my own mental well-being and physical well-being as... Um, professionally required because the tools of my job are my, I don't know, I want to say like my soul or my personality or my cognitive ability. So keeping my tools sharp requires me to keep those things well maintained. And that means, I don't know, for me, it's like regular exercise and good diet and seeing friends and um, doing nice things and spending time with my partner, all, all of that sort of stuff. But I treat it fairly seriously and try to be pretty good around personal boundaries with it. Um, it means like leaving work on time. And if, you know, in previous situations where I worked for other people, if other people were pushing me to work through my lunch break or stay late afterwards, I would say, look, like, I know that's what you want. I'm not going to do that because me taking my lunch break and seeing my colleagues and having a, you know, nice bit of food and a break from therapy is how I maintain being the good professional that you want me to be and that I want me to be and that my clients want me to be. So I, I tend to not, not compromise too much on those sorts of things and being firm around that. I think that's really important advocating for your own well-being i love how you frame that because i think uh in helping professions we tend to find people are happy to sacrifice their own well-being like i'll do this Mm. for everybody across the board whether it's 
catering for a, a function or doing family and friends favors. But I yeah. really like that you brought it back to you're passionate about your client work. A big part of your work is you as the whole therapist and the yeah. vibe you bring. You do your best work if you're mentally well, if you're mm. mentally sharp, if you're not fuzzy. So in order to do that, your self-care becomes mm. part of your professional integrity. Yeah. So it's yeah, an investment yeah. in doing well because that client that you see, maybe the last one for the day, they don't care that you've had six people before them. They don't care that you've right. had a crappy night's sleep or you have an exercise. That's their 50 minutes to yeah. unload to you what's happened for them. You've yeah. got to be just as fresh and clean and crisp for them as you were for the one yesterday. Right. Right. Do you, do you charge people differentially depending on how good a psychologist or therapist you are that day? No. <laughs> so I, I think that's really important. Um, as you said, supervision is incredibly important. Continuing development is really important. I've seen a number of, or spoke, spoken to a number of psychologists or therapists who it's clear from the way that they've spoken to me, they haven't kept themselves fresh or they haven't learned what's you know what's current um and that that's really disappointing for me as a as a younger psychologist i hope to continue learning and pushing myself and growing until i retire ideally <laughs> great i'll see you there <laughs> yeah i'll see you there <laughs> um so any kind of websites you want to shout out just off the top of your head and if you want to send me a list i can pop them in the show notes yeah I think that the one thing that I would fully recommend is for, for this audience, for this topic, is a podcast called Queer Sex Ed. That'd be the one thing that I would recommend. I can send you a list of a few few other things as well, yeah. but that'd be my one recommendation. Um, they beautifully cover gender and sexuality, social justice. I think it's very, like, social work appropriate. They're very um, <laughs> systems-minded. But they, the two hosts also just have a really good vibe, cute relationship. Yeah. Oh, I'll put that up. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Josh. Some of the resources that Josh shared in their interview will be available in the show notes. You can go to www.insidesocialwork.com and go to the episode list there. I hope this podcast episode has given you some things to think about around working with diversity in different range of different contexts not just when we're looking at gender and sexuality so if you've got some more topics you want to hear please reach out there's a sign up form on the website where you can join the mailing list you can email me get in touch via the socials i'd love to hear from you and hear about what you want to hear more on on the podcast um, and yeah give us a rating or a review wherever it is you get your podcast it really helps other people uh, get access to the podcast and hear some of the things that we're talking about thanks for listening bye thank you for listening to today's podcast be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcast